0: Remember Jurassic Park? Amazing movie where science brings dinosaurs back from extinction. The experiment blows up. People get hurt. But not before actor Jeff Goldblum declares, scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And then a dinosaur eats Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Right now, some very smart scientists and thinkers are working on a way to revive not dinosaurs, but other extinct species or near replicas of them, like the woolly mammoth, using the gene editing technology known as CRISPR. To paraphrase Jeff Goldblum, should they? We think this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two who will argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the K Playhouse at Hunter College in New York City will choose the winner. As always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. Our resolution, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. Let's meet the team arguing for that resolution. Please first welcome Dr. Ross McPhee. Ross, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You can, you can stay seated there for this conversation. You're a, a paleomammalogist and a curator at the Department of Mammalogy at the American Museum of Natural History. You are also the author of the new book, The End of the Megafauna, the fate of the world's hugest, fiercest, and strangest animals. Help us out here. What do we mean by megafauna, and what is the fate
1: of the megafauna? Thank you, John. Well, megafauna just means big animals. <laughs>
0: That was so easy.
1: (laughs) So it also includes things that we're going to be talking about tonight, like woolly mammoths, which are extinct. But I want to draw a line under the fact that there are still surviving megafauna, rhinos, elephants, hippos, who are in many cases in very dire circumstances.
0: And of course, you have a great partner. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Lynn Rothschild. Lynn, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are an evolutionary biologist, and you're an astrobiologist, like everybody else in the room. Uh, You are also a professor of molecular biology at Brown. You've been the faculty advisor to the award-winning Stanford Brown iGEM team. That team has been pioneering the use of synthetic biology to accomplish human settlement on Mars. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means?
2: Absolutely. Um, What you didn't mention is that I also am a scientist at NASA. And our big problem...
0: (laughs) That's on (laughs) Thursdays, I guess, right?
2: Really, our big problem at NASA is to launch things into space. That's what's expensive, is to fight Earth's gravity. And if you start to use biology as a technology, a technology that can do things that no other technology can do, like self-repair and reproduce and so on, that computers can only dream about, I believe that you can solve the problem of human exploration.
0: And this is the team arguing for the resolution. Don't bring extinct creatures back to life. And now we have a team arguing against the resolution, which means they do want to uh, do this work. Please first welcome Stuart Brandt. Stuart, you are a true legend and an icon. You founded the award-winning Whole Earth Catalog. You co-founded the Long Now Foundation and Revive and Restore. That's uh, a movement that is facilitating the uh, revival of extinct species. You have written tech books. You have written science books. You are credited with helping to found the environmentalist movement. There is a famous quote attributed to you, Stuart. We are as gods and might as well get good at it. What What did you mean by that?
3: Well, that was 1968 in the Whole Earth Catalog, and I was talking about personal power then. But it still sort of applies now when we're realizing that we're the most powerful species on the planet. And now I think it's we are as gods and have to get good at it, given the climate change and everything else.
0: And an extremely esteemed partner you have on your team arguing against the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. George Church. George, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. You're a professor of health sciences and technology at Harvard and MIT. You have earned dozens of awards and honors, including Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. You developed the first direct genomic sequencing method. That resulted in the first genome sequence ever. In all of this that you've been doing all your life, what inspires your work?
4: Well, I'm inspired by my students uh, who go on and and do things uh, for society. I'm inspired by all the opportunities in medical research to help people uh, live healthier lives.
0: Thank you very much for joining us, George Church, and the team arguing against the resolution Don't Bring Extinct Creatures Back to Life. Now we move on to the debate proper. We go in three rounds. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the resolution, don't bring extinct creatures back to life, is Dr. Lynn Rothschild, evolutionary biologist and astrobiologist. Ladies and gentlemen, Lynn Rothschild.
2: Now, as an evolutionary biologist, obviously it would be amazing to bring back extinct creatures. You poke and you prod them and you study them. But that's not really what this field's about. What we're really talking about here is some kind of mixture, because there's only one creature that I can think of that you actually could bring back from the dead, and it's been done, and that's a virus. Now, I don't need to give you a lecture on viruses for you to imagine how horribly wrong de-extincting viruses can go. So let's now speak really about what the issues are. And as I started to think of them, most of them started to start with the letter E, and so I'm I'm now gonna call these like the seven E's. The first one is for extinction. We have to think, why did these creatures go extinct to begin with, and is there any reason to think it would be different a second time? And even if you start to bring them back, you're gonna have real problems of inbreeding depression, just as we've done with the domestic dogs. Think about what's happened with the English bulldog. So if you really want to bring back extinct creatures, you better be prepared to bring back over a hundred so you have the genetic diversity. Evolution, second E. Even if we bring these back to life, we're not going to be able to control how they evolve in the future. And with the severe inbreeding, I don't think they will have a future ecology. Um, we need an ecosystem in order to survive. So we can think a lot about the examples of reintroducing species into environments like the gray wolf into Yellowstone. There were all sorts of downstream effects. But we also have an internal ecology, our microbiome. And if we even bring back something like an extinct mammoth, it's not going to have a mammoth microbiome. Your microbiome affects what you can eat. It affects your immune system, your, your attitudes, your emotions, and so on. And so, again, what are we really doing? We're creating some kind of hybrid ecosystem. Ethology, the science of behavior, all these things like birds and mammals have to learn from their parents and what parents are going to be around to teach them. For example, in California, we've had the um, reintroduction of the condors. There was the passive breeding program with very few condors. When these poor creatures were released into the wild, they had an unnatural affinity for humans. They didn't behave as the way they should for condors. Fifth E is economics. Um, According to the Performing Animal Welfare Society, a healthy elephant costs about $70,000 per year to care for, and an elderly elephant costs a good deal more. Of course, we're not talking about one, we're talking about many, many creatures emotions. We may have this feeling that this would be a great thing, and we feel this sense of loss when we lose a species. I don't know if you remember on New Year's Day, the last of a certain species of snail with a cuddly name of George died, and we all felt bad. Was that really important to you that George died, that the one last snail of some species, I don't even remember the name, died? Is that a reason for de-extinction? And finally, the last D is ethics, which Ross will pick up on. And here we're Talking about things like restorative justice, animal welfare, but we have to also think: What is restorative justice? Are we making ourselves feel better because our ancestors ten thousand years ago may have been involved in the extinction of this creature? Do we have the right to create individual suffering in order to assuage our guilt or maybe take this blood libel of our ancestors off of our hands?
0: Thank you, Lynn Rothschild. Our resolution is Don't Bring Extinct Creatures Back to Life. And here to be making his opening statement against the resolution, here is Stuart Brand, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and co-founder of Revive and Restore. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Brand.
3: I've been a conservationist since I was 10, which is 70 years ago. The idea that has changed everything is that you can now sequence extinct species from museum specimens, find out exactly what their genome was, you can sequence closely related species and then look at what's different and then move what's different that's important from the extinct genome into the living genome and start to recreate uh, the extinct genome and the extinct animal. This requires having a related species. With a mammoth, it's the Asian elephant. There's the passenger pigeon. On the west coast, there's the band pigeon, really closely related. There's even the dodo, which has been sequenced. Well, what usually happens is people go, oh, the extinction, cool idea. It's so cool, there must be something wrong with it. What you wish is that maybe an umbrella organization like the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which maintains the red list of endangered species and extinct species, if they could just put together some kind of group that would figure out Is this practical, and what would be the guidelines to do de-extinction properly? Well, it happens five years ago, that group came together, and two years later, they came up with the IUCN, Guiding Principles on Creating Proxies of Extinct Species for Conservation Benefit. What's interesting is they're saying, look, most of this is the same as what we already know and we're already good at, which is reintroduction of species in places where they haven't been in a while, translocation of species from where they've gotten to now back to where they used to be, and even ecological replacement of one species for another to serve the same ecological function. The protocols and the practices are all in place. They've been there increasingly over 200 years. They're just saying that de species are in that category. They just happen to be getting there by new technique. The wolves in Yellowstone that Lynn talked about that were brought in as an apex predator and actually uh, moved the whole uh, ecosystem back to a better condition. The condors that then mentioned, there were just 27 left when they went into captive breeding. There's now nearly 500. Half of them are in the wild and they're having progeny in the wild. The most interesting is the peregrine falcon, which went extinct in the East Coast. So it's Eastern peregrine falcon back in the DDT days in the 70s. Ornithologists started hybridizing various other kinds of peregrine falcons, and those mixed birds prospered. And that's why you have peregrine falcons in New York now, helping keep the pigeons at bay. (laughs) What we can now do with biotech and with CRISPR is what you might call precision hybridization. So you can test it in the lab so you already know that it's viable, and then move on. So the main event really is bringing biotech tools from human health that George has worked in to ecological health. And you can say that we're not just curing extinction. The technology that de-extinction is leading the way in is now being used by us and by others to prevent extinction.
0: Thank you, Stuart Brand. As the science advances, should we bring back creatures who have gone extinct? More opening statements coming up on Intelligence Squared US. We're hosting our next debate in New York City later on this month, on February 25th, at the Symphony Space Theater. That debate will be what we call unresolved, where we bring five debaters to the stage to take on four different resolutions in one single evening. This time, all five will be focusing on the U.S.'s economic Cold War with China. Our debaters include the Eurasia Group's Ian Bremmer, a favorite for us here at IQ2. Also, Michelle Flournoy, who served under President Obama, MIT's Professor Yasheng. Huang, Future Maps Parag Kahana, and Susan Thornton, who was a senior diplomat in the Trump administration. Tickets to the live debate, which includes a pre debate cocktail reception, are still available. Visit iq2us.org to buy yours or text the letters IQ and the number 2 to 797979, and you'll get a link sent right to you. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. Don't bring extinct creatures back to life. That's the resolution, and here to make his opening statement to make that argument, please welcome Dr. Ross McPhee, mammalogy curator at the American Museum of Natural History. Ladies and gentlemen, Ross McPhee.
1: Since there aren't any truly de-extincted creatures yet, despite what Stuart just said... Tonight's proceedings are going to be mostly about hypotheticals, sort of the natural history equivalent of Waiting for Godot, for a character that may come with tusks and a trunk, but may not come at all. As Lynn has already noted, de-extinction is not really about bringing back completely extinct species. Instead, it's a form of genetic cosmetic surgery. Supporters say that we we can undo the harm caused by human over over many millennia or we can restore diminished ecosystems. And certainly at some point we may see emerging from George's lab some curious-looking Asian elephants that will have long hair and curvy tusks and small ears and that sort of thing and their genomes will perhaps be around 1% mammoth. But these creatures won't be anything and that's the point. They won't constitute a natural evolutionary species until and unless there's a real wild herd made up of multiple individuals living in and adapted to their place on earth, just like real species. George and Stewart argue that a good place for their restored willies would be high-latitude Siberia. The idea is that the engineered elephants would act as sort of combination, earth movers and gardeners. They'd turn up the ground, the tundra, while foraging. They would keep tree growth down as a result. You keep that up long enough, and you get what's called the mammoth step, which used to exist at high latitude back in the Pleistocene. And as a bonus, you would slow down global warming by decreasing the albedo, which is the reflection of solar energy, in these areas, and thereby reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and methane being degassed into the atmosphere. Jumbo gets a job, that's nice, and the planet will be saved. It's a great storyline, but it's an objective fantasy. Permafrost takes up about 2 million square miles on the planet now, about 17% of the total surface. If you had only one mammoth per square mile, you can do the math. The numbers really don't matter because it would take years and years and even centuries in order to bring back ecological conditions of the sort that we're talking about here. And meanwhile, you'd have to provision your mammoths at the rate of 300 to 500 pounds per day per animal because elephants don't live on sphagnum moss and pine needles. George and Stuart are well-intentioned, brilliant visionaries, but they are in sort of a nostalgia tour where the means become the ends, to which I can only say hubris, hubris, hubris.
0: Thank you, Ross McPhee. The resolution, once again, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. And here is our final debater making his opening statement against that resolution, Dr. George Church, geneticist and professor at Harvard
4: and at MIT. Ladies
0: and gentlemen, George Church.
4: So what are the top uh, concerns? We've heard a number of them already. The environment is no longer adequate. There are... 17 million square kilometers of uh, Arctic, and it is uh, still quite cold. The cost will take away from other conservation projects. We, we have made a business, my, my lab has, of bringing down costs, and we've seen these costs come down as much as 10 million fold for reading and writing DNA. It doesn't guarantee that it will happen, but if we can endow these creatures with uh, new capabilities uh, derived from ancient, uh, we might make the conservation practices on living species uh, more suitable. So at at this point, I think there's this component of purity. It has to be a pure species. But we know that many species are hybrids. Uh, The the de-extinct animals could, could be lonely. The answer is bring back a herd. And diversity is certainly an issue. If we can bring back one, why can't we bring back hundreds? In fact, the diversity could be even higher than it's ever been because we, have, we can draw from many different eras, as long as we loosen ourselves up a little bit about to this idea of hybrids. There's a lot of hybridization that occur, occurs in m- mammals. I can say this, I have to admit, I am a hybrid, I am a partially Neanderthal. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's, let's get loose uh, about that and, and embrace this diversity. I think it's a really excellent point. Is this just something that we're doing as a stunt or we're feeling guilty for our ancestors having killed these things off? I think that's almost irrelevant. The question is, do these species have something to offer us? Do we have something to offer uh, modern species like the Asian elephant, which is endangered? What is it that we're really worried about? Are Are we arguing against... Rewilding? I don't think so. Are we arguing against changing a few base pairs because mammoths and and Asian elephants are extraordinarily closely related? Are we worried about the the microbiome or the viruses? We've shown that we can eliminate uh, the endogenous viruses from the pig. We've done that. We now have living pigs, showing we can do quite a bit of engineering. So we're doing some of the things that Ross asked us to do. Where... uh, the microbiome is going to be a combination of the, of the, of the microbiome of a living fauna that, that are being brought back into this uh, land by the, the Zimmals, for example, in Pleistocene Park in Siberia, and the microbiome of the closely related Asian elephants. The behavior is something that, can, that I think that if we put our minds to, we can, we can handle as well. These are, these are technologies. So the question is not whether we can, it's whether we should. So please vote that we should bring them back.
0: (laughs) Thank you, George Church. That resolution, again, is don't bring extinct creatures back to life. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two, where the debaters address one another directly, and they also take questions. The team arguing for the resolution, Dr. Ross McPhee, Dr. Lynn Rothschild, we have heard them say their opponents, those who want to, to pursue this practice are on a nostalgia tour. They refer to the work they're doing as genetic cosmetic surgery. They point out, and everyone here agrees, we're not talking about having these creatures pop back into life full from the past. What everyone understands is that we're talking about using the technology to amend the genome of existing creatures. The, the side that's opposing this, which is the foresight of the resolution, uh, argues that there is no track record to, to reveal the hidden disasters that could go wrong, and they listed a number of them. And they also make the point that their opponents are getting carried away with sentimentality, that you can bring back a snail, but nobody really loves a snail. Now, on the other side of the resolution, the team arguing against the resolution, don't bring back extinct creatures. And they say two things. One is, look. first of all, look at the potential benefits. These creatures can be endowed with new capabilities that can enhance conservation. That diversity uh, can is something that can be engineered. The economic costs are going down, they say. And as far as the alarm bells that their opponents are ringing, they say there are guidelines in place. So there is experience that, in fact, we're already for centuries have been mixing Uh, the genes of creatures and that this frankly is nothing new that we know how to do it and that there's a very conscious decision to lay out guidelines for this practice both its morality uh, and its ethics. I find interesting the claim that your opponents made I'm talking now to Stuart Brand and George Church your opponents are saying that you're being nostalgic and somewhat acting out of guilt and wanting a sense of restorative justice. And Stuart, you've, you've, you've spoken about that. I mean, you, you've written saying it would be, you know we kind of owe it to some of these creatures to bring them back, and yet I didn't hear that work into your argument tonight. Is that because you've backed off that? or
3: Yeah, I mentioned the sort of retribution, getting it back uh, redemption aspect, because some people buy that, I don't. What happened in the past was done for its own reasons. That's long ago. Those animals are all gone. I think what we're talking about is the present and the future. In the present, we are losing wild animals, like mad. And we need more bioabundance, more of the populations we have, and more kinds of populations. Some of them we know were particularly effective in the past. This is not nostalgia, it's just science. And the same reason that you brought wolves back to Yellowstone, because it needed that apex predator, and Yellowstone was improved when they were brought back. That's the same, all of the extinct species we're talking about bringing back. They're either an ecosystem engineer, like passenger pigeons were, who changed the forest and made it a mosaic, or uh, they were a keystone species, mammoths were in several respects, or the umbrella species, like the heath hen, which will encourage conservationists on the East Coast to make it more of a mosaic, like it used to be when they prospered here. So that's why.
2: Well- First of all, when you talk about something like wolves in Yellowstone, wolves have not gone extinct. They had not been out of Yellowstone all that long, and it was more predictable what was going to happen. And actually, it hasn't been great for the, the elk and the deer. It's great for the, the other species. But as you get farther and farther away from a natural ecosystem, you're going to have more and more unintended consequences, whether there are viruses or bacteria there that are waiting to be um, revived. You just can't predict everything that's going to happen.
4: George Church? Yeah, I think uh, I totally buy uh, both of your economic arguments. Uh, I don't want to be provisioning them at $70,000 a year either. But they're not going to be alone. There are going to be caribou and elks and a variety of other things that do eat uh, moss and and pines. And the the elephants are the few things that will knock down trees with abandon uh, in about 15 seconds. And they'll back off and they'll eat the grass while the, the other species come in and eat the needles and pines. You just need to distribute them so that they each have their square kilometer that they're responsible for, which won't take them that long to clear the trees. (laughs)
1: Ross McPhee. That's great, George. I love that. (laughs) Okay, so let's have a little tundra reality. I I work at high latitude in both polar regions, so I, I know a thing or two. The problem our opponents took up is the idea that if you could convert what is there now to a productive grassland, you would reduce albedo. The average albedo is around 30, 30% reflectance. Grasses are about 35, which means that they're more reflective. But what's there now with the mosses is around 30 or or 25 to 30. It's only bad when you get down into trees where it's going to be 15 to 20. If you look at those percentages and you think about the Enormous effort for these animated machines, the bison and the horses and the elephants that they want to adapt for northern conditions. Does this make any sense? Wouldn't you just send out a bunch of guys with chainsaws in order to turn over the tundra so that you get the kind of grassland that you want? I would
0: just like Stuart to respond to what you just heard from Ross.
3: Yeah, just a month ago, George and I were at Pleistocene Park in northeastern Siberia, and uh, what we saw is that they were indeed using, in their case, uh, caterpillar tractors to knock down trees. They would rather have mammoths, but they don't have them yet. They have a lot of other grazing animals, like the musk oxen and the Yakutian horse and so on. And those creatures are making grassland. Grassland fixes carbon. They are replacing tundra just themselves without mammoths, with some tractors. And uh, that is just one of many long-term beneficial aspects, I think, for climate.
2: That's, that's marvelous, but there's nothing that you said that convinced me that you now need to add a mammoth to the equation. I agree.
1: Okay, Ross. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go off in another direction. You know, there was a huge reaction to the Chinese scientist Hu uh, Jiangui who decided that what he wanted to do was using CRISPR get some zygotes that were not going to uh, probably suffer from HIV even if they got infected because they'd have the right genotype. The reaction to that was so enormous all over the planet because he got no permission for it, no real permission for it. It was the wrong thing to do. So why do we think we can do this with elephants? Elephants are sentient creatures. They have self-awareness. Human babies, until they're six months or a year or so, are not self-aware. Your dog isn't self-aware. So why are we considering them the kind of property that we can mess with to take an Asian elephant, which is not adapted to the polar extremes at all, pump in a few genes that'll give it more body fat and hair and all the rest of it, and then set them loose? Is that really their job?
0: Okay, that's a perfectly phrased question. I want to
4: bring it to George Church. Uh, Excellent point. Uh, I mean, I sympathize. Uh, However, they are currently not having such a happy life going extinct, (laughs) and uh, I, I agree that we should be humane. We should do something that's to their benefit, not just the benefit of the planet. But you are saying the ends, in terms of the treatment of the animals, in the process of making these discoveries, the ends would justify the means? I think the ends and the means should be humane. At uh, every stage, we should, we should be evaluating it very carefully uh, with the kind of agreements that are represented this IUCN. Okay. Lynn Rothschild, does that pledge assuage some of your concerns?
2: It doesn't assuage any of my concerns about de-extinction, but it's exactly what I said I, I think is a good idea that we are really talking about gene therapy. That's perfectly fine. But we're just talking about a couple of genes. And I think Georgia Stewart mentioned earlier, we're, what, people from European ancestry are roughly 1% or 2% Neanderthal. And we're talking about woolly mammoths being, you know, it's about the same percent elephant. But I don't walk around calling myself a de-extincted Neanderthal because I got 2% Neanderthal.
4: Well, we actually share... (laughs) I'm 3% the Neanderthal. But even the part that's not Neanderthal shares a lot with the Neanderthal, okay? So, I mean, we're basically so similar that we apparently got along.
2: Uh, Very well.
4: Very well. (laughs) Ross?
1: The de-extinction agenda, the real de-extinction agenda, which is bringing back completely extinct species, is really more of the same thing, which is utilizing the planet, its resources, for our purposes... It's not for repairing ecosystems that, in a sense, don't need repairing anymore because we're already 10,000 years down the pike from what they were. The, The planet's getting warmer. Whether or not we get elephants up into northern Siberia is not going to change the equation sufficiently to turn the whole process back. The real
3: problem, as usual, is us. Stuart, to respond. Ross, you're sort of saying that this might take two centuries as a problem. I see that as a solution. I think taking on these long-term, multi-generation, multi-century conservation projects is exactly what civilization needs to be doing. It's the kind of scale that we need to think about in terms of climate change and dealing with climate change. Holy mammoths and the mammoth step are not going to fix climate change, but they could be, over the long term, part of the stabilization of climate by replacing what is thawing with quote what what could fix carbon. As far as it being a habitat, the Mammoth Steppe was once the world's largest biome. There's a lot of land mass in the Northern Hemisphere. And it is now uh, the largest intact wilderness is the north of Canada, Alaska, and all of Russia. That is a great place for elephants. Elephants used to be everywhere, including right here. We had Colombian mammoths here. They used to interbreed with woolly mammoths back in the day, as you know. And to get them back in that environment is probably a great place to start to start getting them back lots of places in the world. They don't have to be restricted to Africa or Southeast Asia anymore.
0: Lynn, I, I want to bouncing off of what Stewart just said. On the one hand, Stewart is, is just positing something—a positive impact on the environment and pot- potentially uh, climate change through the reintroduction of an amended uh, elephant that acts and functions and looks like a woolly mammoth. Now, I'm not asking you. Do you believe that can happen? If it could happen, would that beneficial outcome justify what they're talking about?
2: I think. The- There's a very um, big temptation to personify the idea of a species species are these abstractions that don't have feelings. It's the individual organisms do. We don't have feelings as humans. We have feelings as individual creatures. And what I worry about a lot here is what's going to happen. There have been attempts at at de-extinction. No one's mentioned it yet, but the Bocardo, for example, and so on. And you have to go through an awful lot of pain and suffering and attempts to get a single one that might live for a few minutes. But even if you pull off all the technology, it doesn't matter because then you've got the in eating depression. You've got all the um, problems of not having a mom and not having people, other organisms to learn from and not having the right microbiome and so on. And so each of these individuals, I believe will be suffering for something that we could be solving a different way.
0: This is Intelligence Squared US. We'll continue with questions from the audience on de-extinction in just a moment. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US, and we've been debating the resolution, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. We return to audience questions. All right, I'd like to go to audience questions now, and I'm asking you not to debate with the debaters, but to get them to debate uh, better with each other, and to keep it on this point that we're arguing this evening. And right there, if you could stand, please.
3: Hi, yes. Um, I'm from Africa. I'm from South Africa. And I'm very involved with wildlife conservation and the fact that we're losing rhinos at a hugely exponential rate. We've lost the last northern rhino in Kenya and we're looking at potentially the wipeout of rhino in our lifetimes. So de-extinction to me is probably the only thing that we can do to rectify what we're currently doing And so my question to to the panel is, do we not actually have an
2: ethical obligation to fix up what we are currently destroying in the environment? Lynn? I often hear people say, well, if we screw up the Earth, we can always go to Mars, it's plan B. And this, to me, is the same sort of argument. Well, if we kill off the rest of them, we can always de-extinct them. What you should be doing is conserving the last of the ones that are there. And if you can't do that, de-extinction is not plan B.
0: Yes, George Church, the moral hazard argument has been made a lot. If we truly get to the point where we can de-extinct de- at, you know, at will, then we would let species come and go as we feel like it, that that's, that that's a thing that we as humans would probably end up doing. Can you take on that thought and also address the, uh, use the opportunity to address the question that the
4: audience member raised? I, I uh, agree that we should not uh, be using this as plan B, but... The technology that we're developing for de-extincting genes and species is exactly the technology we need for conserving the the living species, and that's why I'm excited about it. Not nostalgia, not so that we can shoot at them, but so that we can uh, help living species, especially those living species that are important for our survival.
0: Let's go to another question, please.
2: Hi, Kathy Soroff. Um, With every invention and discovery, there's a good use and a bad use. And whether or not we legislate, oh, you can or cannot do it, somewhere, someone is going to do it, whether you should or not. So I wanted to find out isn't there an individual situation with each species that we might consider?
0: I think what you're saying is shouldn't this be taken on a case-by-case basis rather than a blanket don't do it? Yes. Let me take that to
1: Lynn or Ross. You know if you've got nuclear bombs and you've got nuclear power plants one is by design a weapon, the other isn't, although bad things can happen what I don't Get from this kind of of argument is that it's always framed in terms of what's good and bad for people and people's interests. So, these animals being brought back that we're talking about, I don't know whether George would patent them, but somebody, somewhere, is certainly going to do precisely that. And by virtue of becoming property, they can be sold, bought, auctioned, and what have you. Is that really the way to bring back ecosystems, to have business interests? capitalism unleashed? I don't think so. You want to bring species back to the degree that you can by intervening very carefully in their lives with some sort of genetic repair mechanism. And then
3: you leave them alone. Let's let Stuart respond. Well, that was the great issue with Jurassic Park, which was a commercial operation. And the reason it became crazy is they were trying to protect their intellectual property and then it got stolen and various bad things happened. There is exactly nothing going on with de-extinction or genetic rescue that I know, has any commercial aspects at all. It's one of the reasons it's hard to raise money for it because nobody's going to get any payback. It's pure philanthropy. Conservation has that quality. Nobody gets rich in conservation. So there's not any private issues involved here. You don't think there's a future in having saber-tooth looky likes uh, that you can use for hunting purposes? If you want to do it, go for it. Nobody I know is lining up to do that sort of thing. What they are doing is what they are doing in conservation generally, which is begging for money to make a good thing happen for the commonweal of species and the commonweal of humans. And it is totally transparent. It's the opposite of what was the problem in Jurassic Park. There's no secret IP involved here. Even CRISPR, where they're fighting over the patents. Everybody's using CRISPR while they fight over the patents. Um,
0: sir, can you see me pointing at you? You're about three rows from the back. Thank you.
3: Hi, my name is Jeff. I have a question. I think it builds on uh, the question she was asking, which was that given that new precedents in science basically set uh, or opened the door for future work in that field, how can you be sure bringing back extinct creatures would not then uh, open the door to bringing back extinct Neanderthals?
0: So you're talking about the slippery slope potential that after going for the mammal animals, they would start going for the mammal hominids. Who knows? I I guess it's a who knows question. It's a little hard to answer because it's who knows, but I actually want to put it to the the side of the panel being challenged by that.
3: Well,
4: I would say that there's a pretty steep gradient uh, between humans and other animals, whether we think there should be or not. Uh, Chimpanzees get a lot of rights. Uh, It's very hard to do experiments on them at this point. Uh, I think Neanderthals are, are humans. They're modern. They're just like modern humans. And uh, I think they would be respected as such. Uh, you can patent human cells, but that doesn't mean you own the human being.
3: I would make the point this is not a slippery slope. This is a very high friction shallow slope with arguments and... That's a nice coinage.
0: Th- I've never heard the, <laughs> the, the non-friction shallow slope, but I think that's a very useful term.
3: And there's argument every step of the way, as there should be until there's actual beginnings of the process that we're trying to set in motion, we don't have data to argue with. All we have is sort of dueling conjectures. And that's fine for now, and uh, I don't think it's going to stop the people who are trying to do the experiments. They'll actually prove they'll get us some data.
2: I'm sorry. I'd like to get back to Neanderthals because I thought this would come up. So I made a point of looking at the exhibit at the museum yesterday and staring these exhibits in the eye. And I believe people have talked about de-extincting Neanderthals and possibly some people on the other side of the stage. And I just want to say that I believe equivocally that is absolutely wrong. And to purposely recreate a species that we know is going to be inferior in some ways is just asking for enormous trouble. And so I'd just like to be on the record in saying that I find that whole idea morally off the table.
3: So back in the day when when Homo sapiens was interbreeding with Neanderthals, you would have discouraged that.
2: She did not say
3: that. (laughs) Um, I'd like to respond to this too, because these are ethical
1: questions, right? And the thing about ethical philosophy is that it's always framed the good and the bad as it affects humans. There isn't really an ethical philosophy for animals, although there should be. So we can say, on the one hand, as Lynn just did, that it's absolutely repugnant to consider the idea of bringing back Neanderthals. But it is perhaps not so repugnant to think about bringing back woolly mammoths. Well, why should that be? I put it to you that we shouldn't be thinking like there's a divide between them and us, that we're somehow different from everything else. We're not. And the same kinds of ethical questions that arise in thinking about bringing back human ancestors that are no longer with us should apply to bringing back completely extinct species.
0: On to another question there.
3: Hi, my name is Eileen. So the conflation of gene therapy versus returning a fully extinct animal aside, would both sides of the argument acknowledge the fact that if you bring back a Pleistocene creature to the Anthropocene, despite the fact that they have the same DNA, by default, make it a different creature than it was? So I'm basically talking about how we compare modern day hunter-gatherer societies to our hunter-gathering Neanderthal ancestors. Can
2: I, can I answer? I'm sure, yes. I, I actually... Oh, uh. often answer sort of a variation of it when I'm talking about astrobiology, that if you took DNA to another planet and then you brought something back to life, is that still the same? And my answer is that we have this idea that there has to be an evolutionary continuity, but we've broken that using molecular biology. So I believe that they still would be the same species. I don't know the vast majority of people in this room, and I don't know if you were made in the basement this morning or they were worried that no one would come out in the cold, and so they may make you in the back room. You sure all look like humans to me.
4: George. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd agree. (laughs) Okay. Uh,
0: Hi, uh, my name is Cameron. A question a friend and I were thinking of, was is there an ethical difference between natural selection and humans deciding what happens? Uh, is there really a difference between humans taking the reins and like what I you like guys I like that?
1: The thing about natural selection is the word "natural." The idea that all species, including ours, is the product of eons of selection by natural forces that has shaped us. When it becomes artificial selection, it's no longer just allowing nature to take its course so to speak it's our intervening in who breeds with whom who gets selected for whatever desirable set of traits who survives and who doesn't and i see that as a dramatic difference
0: and that concludes round two of this intelligence squared u.s debate where our resolution is don't bring extinct creatures back to life Now we move on to round three, and round three will be brief closing statements by each debater in turn. Here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution is Dr. Ross McPhee, mammalogy curator at the American Museum of Natural History.
1: So we've spent a lot of time tonight on what we might call taxonomic trivia. For me, the issue isn't what you call these creatures, It's why you do what you do in the first place. And let's get very real, synthetic biology is the thing that could help to solve huge ecological problems. For example, we raise billions of meat and dairy animals every year. They contribute hugely to methane production, a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So could we even fractionally reduce that particular problem Consider slaughterless meat that is derived from cattle stem cells. There's no harm to the animal that provides the cells, and there's no significant thereafter production of greenhouse gas emissions. So why would we bother with this? Because everything is interrelated. Reducing the number of meat, animals, and the land needed to grow them may allow, eventually, for forests to come back in Amazonia. Stop destructive burning in Madagascar and the dumping of huge quantities of agricultural chemicals, hormones, and other forms of chemical pollution into our water systems and ultimately the ocean. This would be truly transformative and very different from misdirected efforts to try to recreate the past in the present.
0: Thank you, Ross McPhee. And that resolution again, don't bring extinct creatures back to life, and here making his closing statement against the resolution, Dr. George Church, geneticist and professor at Harvard and MIT.
4: I really love the arguments that Ross and Lynn have made. Uh, I agree that, uh, that there could be harm along the way, and we should avoid it as much as possible. In fact, we should reduce the total amount of harm that occurs in the wild right now. That is something, if we can do it, we should do it. We should not be limited in what we can do. If it involves bringing back one or two extinct genes, I think we have, we're converging on that might be okay. If we can do one or two, why not 100, 1,000? 1, all 20,000 genes. I agree that we should try to be more animal-centric in addition to being human-centric on our ethics. And I think that this, that allowing such technologies to bloom might be part of that uh, argument, sort of part of that discussion. I, I am a vegan, and I actually have... Uh, and I am an advisor for companies that make slaughterless meat, so I totally agree with that. But we should not be limited in the technology that we can bring to bear on returning the Amazon to its status and so forth. I think we should be able to use anything that brings about humane treatment and better ecosystems.
0: Thank you, George Church. Again, the resolution, Don't Bring Extinct Creatures Back to Life. Here making her closing statement in support of the resolution, Dr. Lynn Rothschild, evolutionary biologist and astrobiologist.
2: Um, as I said at the beginning, I really think that there are a whole bunch of reasons. There are seven E's, as I call them, that are both environmental and ethical reasons why you don't do this. History is littered with exotic zoos that the benefactor eventually decided he was no longer going to support. What happens to these four creatures? You have a second extinction on your hands. But really, in the end, we've been dancing around this idea of what is natural. Is it natural to have a woolly mammoth on the Siberian steppes? Or is it more natural to have a sky filled with pterodactyls? Or maybe a sea filled with trilobites? Or actually an anaerobic Earth, which is what it was like through much of evolution. The natural Earth didn't have life here at all. So you can't just pick and choose like a Chinese menu and decide what's natural and what you're gonna plug in and out of ecosystems. That's not the way it works. So, no matter how cool this seems, we should not de extinct creatures. Jurassic Park was a bad idea. Pleistocene Park is no better. Certainly, the um, Precambrian Park was a hellish place to live. It's not the time to de extinct these creatures, but rather to focus on conservation of the amazing creatures that evolution has wrought. So, therapeutic de extinction, fine. De extincting creatures, no.
0: Thank you, Lynn Rothschild. And our final speaker of the evening, making his closing statement against the resolution and in support of bringing extinct creatures back to life, here is Stuart Brand, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and co-founder of Revive and Restore.
3: Back in the 1970s, the big biotech issue was in vitro fertilization, IVF. It was clearly going to be hubris. It was going to be playing God that you're gonna uh, mess with human fertility in some strange and uh, obviously against religion way. Uh, it was obvious that the babies were probably gonna be, there was gonna be something wrong with them, they would be impaired, and for sure there was something wrong with the parents that even, they would even want such a thing. In 1978, the first IVF baby, Elaine Brown, came along, and people fell in love with that little girl. She was healthy. Her parents were ecstatic. There's probably IVF babies here in this audience. It became the norm. The controversy went away as soon as you saw what they've been shooting for all along. This is called the victory condition. What, is, what drove the doctors then and is driving us now is the potential victory condition of getting some species back. Just here in New York State, you will have passenger pigeons back helping make the eastern forest, which has grown back since they went extinct 100 years ago, to be more of a mosaic. You'll get heathens back, uh, which are these wonderful animals that were the greatest game bird, and that's why they're hunted to extinction. And in the ocean, just offshore here, great auks will be swimming around, taking up their old uh, habitat, which is perfectly intact and waiting for them. And what you will see is greater biodiversity here and everywhere. So a vote against the resolution is a vote for biodiversity, is a vote for more life.
0: Thank you, Stuart Brand. And that concludes closing statements. The results are in. You have voted twice on this resolution. Don't bring extinct creatures back to life. On the resolution, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. Before the debate and polling the audience, 31% of you agreed 48% were against the resolution, that means they're in favor of the work being done, or proposed work being done, and 21% were undecided. So remember, it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. On the second vote, the team arguing for the resolution, don't bring extinct creatures back to life. Lynn and Ross, their first vote, 31%. Their second vote, 48%. They pulled up 17 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against the resolution, Stuart and George, their first vote, 48%. Their second vote, 44%. They lost four percentage points. That means the team goes to the side arguing for the resolution. Don't bring extinct creatures back to life. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. One last thing right now is the point where we ask for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find our podcasts. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us today. I'm sure we can agree. America does need reasoned, balanced discussion today more than ever. This Intelligence Squared US debate was recorded live at the K Playhouse Theater in New York. Robert Rosenkrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathow is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Mary Dowie and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, the George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and Jennifer and Philippe Salende From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you.